All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Come on in and have a chair. Um, I want to start us this morning with a scripture verse. Um, on the board, I, I wrote different titles than what's actually on my chart. My chart, it's all about the pillars, that Jesus is the pillar, we're to hold fast as pillars, and you will be a pillar, right? Because these are the things. But as I was driving in, the Holy Spirit was just kind of saying, you know, make it more practical so that people really understand what it is that you're saying. And so what I came up with is this is Jesus about Jesus, who he is. He is our pillar, and he's the, he's the rock upon which we stand and hold fast to and Coming to know him better in this class, boy, I tell you, through all these weeks uh, of studying these churches, getting to know exactly who he is by his names, what he says to each church, this is how, what you can count on concerning me as your savior and as your um, as your master, as your Lord, as your king, as all these things that he is to us. I think these, is, these are probably one of the most important things that we can draw out of what we're looking at this week. And then the last one is um, eternity, what Jesus promises. In my, on my chart, it was, you will be pillars. So it's the promises that he has given to us concerning the coming of the eternal kingdom and our eternal life with him. So those are the things we're going to be covering and addressing today. And with that kind of in mind, then, knowing that really the central focus of everything that we've been studying, if you haven't picked up on it, is who? Who is he? Who's our central focus of everything we've been looking at? Oh, thank you. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It wasn't a trick question. They're going, uh, John the Baptist? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You guys are, come on, wake up, wake up. All right. Uh, that was the other church, wasn't it? Okay. Let me just read to you out of Hebrews. There's a verse in Hebrews that, that I think it, it really kind of says it very nice and concisely. And it's going to, I think, kind of help us to focus in a little bit. Um, in Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we have so great a crowd of witnesses surrounding us, meaning all those believers who've gone before us, we have all these as witnesses to the things that we ourselves are right now journeying through as in our faith walk. Since we have them, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, uh, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And I think, whoa, what a great witness. This is who he is. This is what he expects of us to endure and to run the race. And then he says, look, I'm your example. I now am in my glory. I'm sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, and I have finished the work of salvation for you. And all it is now is just an invitation for us to join him in that. So um, I, I just felt like as I was thinking about the things that we were looking at this week, that these are the truths I think that we need to really grab hold of as we're looking at all these technical details, right, which are many. Um, so I'm going to once again go through what we've done this week, basically. Day one, you looked at those basic overview observations. We'll cover those. Uh, your your chart that you should be doing on the uh, churches concerning who is Jesus, how is he described to us, condemnations and reproofs. This thing, have you found this to be a really good tool for you, though, as you've been doing your homework? Because it kind of gives you a concise 
a point by point observation without all the details, but it's really, it's, I think it's very helpful. Um, and day two, we looked at Jesus's descriptions, a couple of them, one that he is true and the other that he is the one who has the key of David. And we did quite a bit of work in those two areas of his, that he is true, what that means and uh, that he has the key of David. Day three, we looked at the, the a list about that subject of behold, where it says behold twice in the text, right? Um, and we're going to talk about why that would be something to really pay attention to, what that means. Um, also, we looked at Satan, the adversary in this. Again, he comes up. He keeps coming up. Did you notice? So this week, she had you go back and look at all the chapters and kind of make an accumulative list on what you've learned and seen about Satan on the whole. Is there any, what are you, what have you seen about Satan on the whole when you did that concise list on him? Boy, is he. <laughs> well, they got that one right. <laughs> that, G, that Satan is a liar and that um, when, whenever the exhortations were given, weren't they very similar? Did you notice how similar every, with every church, even though there was a varying um, scenario, their situations were a little bit different, but it's almost every single time concerning who Satan is and concerning who Jesus is, there's a real continuity in what he calls us to do in response right? Okay, so we'll look at that. Then we also looked at that subject, the hour of testing. Um, before you all came and before we started the video, I was talking with Cynthia about this uh, Hebrew Greek word from, right? I'm going to, I'm going to take you from the hour of testing. Um, and in the homework, we were given some uh, work on that. And I did a lot, a lot. And I am not a Greek scholar. I'm so I'm so lost when I get in there, but we're going to talk about what I discovered, and I hope you all did some really good research and can share also. Um, so that was in day four, and really day five also. We did more about the, the hour of testing, but uh, talking more about the what, what's going to happen in that day of uh, hour of testing that you can see from the immediate context. Now, what I thought was great was day four, she introduced the subject of the hour of testing within the co context or the confines of the letter to Philadelphia, right? But when she took you in day five, what did she do? Where did she take you? Do you remember? She said, look at the hour of testing. And she, she said, okay, look at these references. And she gave you all these revelation verses, right? Uh, 16 was one and eight and five and okay so what did she do she left the immediate context of the letter in chapter three and then where did she take you to, uh, she took you into revelation to show you where right didn't she am i wrong on that let me look here on day, oh, okay on day four okay i had the wrong day i'm gonna look here hold on Okay, she started us on day four, looking at Jesus's example. Oh, she gave us 12, one through three also, which I read. So that was perfect, right? I actually stayed within our homework <laughs> for a change. <laughs> okay, um, and then we looked at the word testing, and then she took us to Revelate. You're right, it's on day four, Revelation 6, 8, 11, 13, and 17. So what she did in that was... It, she started with us looking at it in the immediate context. Then she took us to the book context. Why is that? Why do you think that she would do that? 
where is your best definition going to come from if you're trying if you're struggling to get an understanding of what the hour of testing is talking about yeah within the own book within the author's own book that's the now you can definitely go to to it again outside in other con other cross references outside but the rule that you follow when you're doing inductive study is if you've got a word or a phrase or a concept or a subject matter that's presented, you want to first make your list from your immediate context, right? And get as much information as you can from, from within the letter itself. Because why? What is, your, what is one of your pillars about context? Context rules for interpretation. You guys got to get this down. Context rules for interpretation. So why do you make your list in the immediate context first? Because context rules for the interpretation. What's going to happen is when you go outside of your, your immediate context, you could get other kinds of possibilities, right? Then you have to go back into your immediate context and say, well, which one is the correct understanding? And you always have to remember your immediate context rules. So you have to say, well, what is he, who is he talking to? What is he saying? Why is he saying it? What, you know, what was his purpose, correct? And that's how you get your interpretations. And that's what doing inductive Bible study is all about, is learning how to, the disciplines, right, of doing inductive study, how they help you. Um, so the second thing she did then was take us to the immediate context of the book. Well, first, the immediate context of the passage, then the book, because it's the same author, and it's the same purpose. Are you seeing what I'm saying? And that's why that's your second best place for interpretation of what that phrase or, or that subject meant. After that, you can go to outside context and see what else the word of God has to say, and then you have to come back. But what rules for interpretation? Your immediate context, right? So that's what we did in our homework this week. And hopefully that kind of explains to you that flow of thought. And it, every time I repeat these things, and I know I repeat things a lot. And for those of you who've been with me for a long time, you get pretty tired of it. But it's really important. No, Becky's still saying no. But that's because you haven't been with me as long as some of these others who've been here like for 15 years and forever and precept. Who knows how? How long have you been in precept? Oh, with me, like 20 years ago, when I first started at this church, yeah. Yeah, so you are tired of hearing her, but here she sits. So obviously she still thinks it's okay for me to remind her. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But I don't know when you start. No, I know. Now, yeah, yeah, for, if, at this church, yeah. Right. I started at this church. I started with precept myself in 1986. So I, I've been, a, I don't know how many years that is. It's a lot. <laughs> I'm, I'm aging myself. Um, I was just saying, I know. See, that's the good thing, Kathleen. You can shout them out, right? For those of you who've been here a long time. And some of the others of you have been here. Kathy, you've been here a long time too. Yeah. And you were, that's right. And that's the other thing that's really good. I always encourage my students. As you know, we've had a lot of teachers leave me. People that were here for a while, learned the method, and then went out and they're now teaching, which is exactly what a teacher wants to see happen. You want multiplication. Um, but 
the, the longer you stick with it, the better the process begins to gel in your mind as to why am I doing this, right? And also, I do think there's discipline in this because when you come, I'm going to ask you questions and you have to answer because I can't just be singing up here all by myself, right? <laughs> okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to start with just look, talking about what our key words were for this week. What were your key subjects in the book uh, or in the letter to Philadelphia? This is chapter three, verses seven to 13. What were your key subjects there? Yeah, holy and true and the key of David. All right. And those are subjects pertaining to who? Jesus. Okay. So he would definitely be another key subject, right? Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit are always key if they're in there, right? And they are. Who? And who is the who? Jesus. Yes. Yeah. So you would mark that as a Jesus with the cross on it. Yes. Deeds is another good one. Yes. Open and shut, right? And that, therefore, that subject comes up for you. What is it that he's opening and shutting and the, the interpretation for what that might mean? And we do know that some of these things outside of this immediate context could mean other things, right? But you got to try to draw it in and say, but in this context, what is he speaking of, right? Okay. Any others? How about... Behold. Yeah, that's a good one. Behold. And that's a major word. Why? Why does it become key? That's, a, that's exactly right. Behold, even though it may not even be repeated more than, it may only be said once even in a, in a text, but because of its significance of meaning, which means basically they're, they're grabbing you by the collar, shaking you just a little bit and bringing you up real close to their face. And they're saying, I really want you to hear this, right? This is something significant. This is something profound. So if you see that word behold, you certainly should mark it as a key word, okay? I will. Oh, yes. And who is the I will? Jesus again. Back to Jesus. Very good. <laughs> Yes, holding fast. So there's a, one of the instructions to what, how he wants us to live, right? Holding fast. Can you see it already written in here? Holding fast. <laughs> okay. All right. So those are, the, those are your basic keywords. And what you do then inductively is once you've, you've, you've marked your text, you've got all those keywords written or marked in a distinctive way, now you need to begin to think about list making and research on them, right? That's the next step that you would do. So hopefully you did all that. The other thing that you should have done this week is your observations for the historical uh, Philadelphia, correct? Tell me what you discovered about Philadelphia. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, say it again. It's in yeah, right. No. Who? <laughs> Funny. It's not, we're not in Pennsylvania, but yes, there's a Philadelphia there. What did you learn about, about Philadelphia historically? She does direct you in that way, doesn't she? Now, that's very interesting because um, 
within the text, do you see any of that? No, you really don't. So again, here's one of those situations where you, you have to say to yourself now, um, is it true that God can give an open door for missions work? So if you're in the book of Acts and Paul is saying, God opened a door or God shut a door and we wanted to go here, but then God didn't let us or Satan prevented us or whatever, right? Or God didn't allow it. Then you know you're on the subject of missions. But in this book, was there any subject about missions at all? I can see you all going, no, no, I didn't see that at all. I didn't see that either. So it's interesting to me that she brings it up. Why do you think she might bring it up? Because some people might go there. And if you are not, if you're not alert to it when you're doing your homework and your study, so that you would look at that and go, eh. I don't know. I mean, okay, yes, there's missions. Yes, an open door. That can work in another book. But in the context, in this context, is it there? Hmm, not really. I mean, if it's there, what would, what would you have to do? You'd have to kind of bring that thought in and add to the, the context in order to come to that interpretation, right? So I don't know what Kay's going to say on the video. So if I'm on a different page from her, just know it's because I've done my own homework and my own thinking here. Hey, there's our ladies. No, however, I'm sorry, say it louder. Absolutely, it is. But that's what I'm saying. But but the context, the flow of thought in the book, the, the letter to Philadelphia, is it talking about them going out and sharing the gospel in any measure? It doesn't really bring it up, does it? So the context is not there for you to apply that interpretation, even though it is a, it is a possible interpretation if you were to go somewhere else. But yes, but that's there. Yes, and that's there what God is commending them for doing. And that is true. Kept his word, but kept it has to do with what subject? Obedience. Obedience. Yeah. Okay. So we'll, so we'll get to that. So historically, yes, Philadelphia, they were kind of known though for an open door concerning what subject? Yep. Yep. There you go. For Hellenizing that part of the world, right? Because it was still, it was still more, uh, what was the, what was the, gr the group? I can't remember now. Um, Lydian. There you go. Yeah. So they had this older mindset of how the world operated and how they thought and their political views and all that. And they wanted to Hellenize them to get them on board with what Greece and the Greek empire kind of was doing. And so that's for them, they became a central hub for Hellenization at that time in history. And that is a true statement. So in that way, they were an open door, right? But that doesn't have anything to do with our letter. That's just the historical background to the church. Okay. All right. Very good. What else did we learn about Philadelphia? Yeah. Say it again. Yeah. So there were these two brothers, right? And what did you learn about them? You don't remember? Does anybody remember? Yes. 
There you go. Because the name Philadelphia means brotherly love, right? So in here it says um, it was established in 189 BC by King Eumenes II of Pergamum. Eumenes II named the city for the love of his brother, who would be his successor. His name was Adelus II, whose loyalty earned him the nickname Philadophos, literally meaning one who loves his brother. Um, I hate to bust everybody's bubble on this one, but I did a little bit more research on that because I was trying to find it. Anybody else find it? This was interesting. And the shocking true origin of the name Philadelphia, not going to probably like this, but uh, you've been taught the name Philadelphia comes from Greek meaning city of brotherly love. Well, that's mostly true. Mostly. It does, it, in its translation, if that's all you give you information about, it means brotherly love, right? True. What you haven't been taught is the long, fascinating history behind the name. It turns out that the name Philadelphia ultimately comes from a nickname given to an ancient Greek ruler of Egypt who gained notoriety for marrying his own full sister. Brotherly love. <laughs> the brotherly love in the nickname originally refers literally to incest. Uh, I know. I was, not, I was not happy when I read that. But you know what? I, I still think it's important for us to do the research, even if sometimes you come across stuff you really don't like. Now, what's very interesting about me was this was is um, because he was Egyptian originally before they, it became the Greek Empire, right? It was under the, the Egyptians and these Ptolemies oh, and they all intermarried and it was awesome. not three, for them to Yeah, we're going to turn that sound off. There we go. Sorry, I got distracted. <laughs> okay, uh, that doesn't usually happen, but it did it's right in my ear, I guess. Um, but because in Egypt, this was commonality, it was not an unusual thing. For us, we repel at it. And so did, by the way, the people of Pergamos. They did not like this. They, they were just really appalled by it. And that's where the nickname came about brotherly love, but it was a slanderous kind of a nickname. But I thought that was interesting. But what happened is he also did have a brother whom he dearly loved and whom he left as a, as a successor, right? So all that is true also, but there was a little bit more behind the story that I found when I did some digging. Um, he said he was the son of Ptolemus the first Soter, who was one of Alexander the Great's general and a member of the Diadochio, the group of Alexander's companions who divided up his empire after his death. Those of us who did Daniel, we know that um, Alexander, he conquered that whole area. It became the, the Greek uh, empire, but he died very shortly after doing that. And so then they were started out with five generals, but then one general died off and they left them four. And so they divided it basically into four quarters. And these four generals took command of each section. That became these lineage or these lines of people who ruled in Greece at that time. And he was one of them. It was of uh, the Ptolemy line. We're familiar with that name because we studied that when we did Daniel. Um, he claimed Egypt as his territory and had succeeded him as king of Egypt after his death. At some point between 279 and 274 BC, Ptolemy II married his own full sister. Uh, marriages between siblings were normal for the Egyptian pharaohs, so the Ptolemies 
um, native Egyptian subjects weren't terribly you know, surprised, but the Greeks living in the Ptolemy kingdom were absolutely shocked and scandalized because among the Greeks, marriage between full siblings was deeply morally wrong, even for kings. Uh, but you and I know this about other histories. We've seen other histories where this is where a lot of the madness came in the, in the kings because they would intermarry and have these children. Okay, so that's basically all I'm going to read on that. But um, the main thing was that the, the name Philadelphia is associated with brotherly love. And there was this, this very deep affection and very uh, close-knit family between he and his brother. And that brotherly love then is what's picked up by us. It's what pretty much all the, the books that you read are going to, they're going to focus on that. You know why? Nobody wants the nasty, dirty stuff that's actually out there, which is interesting to me. Yeah, I found it interesting. Okay, so that's a little bit of the history I found. Any other history that you learned about that region? There's a bunch. Yes. There's a, uh, um, there was a figure called Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh -huh who is a foreshadow of the Antichrist mm -hmm. in many ways. Mm -hmm. He started a military campaign. Call from D7260735250146. ...of Israel and proceeded to beat up on the Jews. And many people became Hellenistic Jews in that time. Mm -hmm. Sure they did. adopted a lot of the... Yeah. Jewish, about the pagan philosophers. Right. Mm -hmm. and, um, and this ties into Philadelphia because they were affected then by that yes. eventually. Yes. yes. I was following you. <laughs> I understood where you were headed. <laughs> okay, good deal. All right, so that's that. What do you know about the topographical area of, of that location of Philadelphia? Do you know, do you know about what was happening in the city or what was grown in the city or what they were mostly known for? Does it, I have a book over here that will help you a little bit. It's my own personal photos of that city where when we went and visited there. Grapes was a huge one. This was very interesting. Um, uh, the apparently Philadelphia was second to basically Athens and all these other major cities in Greece in grape growing. They had become so famous for it that eventually the, the Caesars in Greece said, we want you to tear down all your vineyards. And they forced them to, to basically destroy every, all their vineyards. So that, that was their major income and crop. This, is, this greatly hurt this small community in Philadelphia. I thought that was very interesting, just as a, as a side note. But what also happens in that area were earthquakes. They were in a central part. Oh, you're all shaking your heads, so tell me what you learned. If you know this, tell me. Greatest earthquakes ever. Yes. Yes. And when there were earthquakes, what kind of dwellings did these people have in this small city or this small community? What would happen to them when there was earthquakes? It's obvious, guys. What happens when the houses fall down? The houses fall down on their heads, right? Yeah, and so it's obvious. I'm not trying to trick you. Um, <laughs> but what happened was there were so many earthquakes, and then then after this really major one, which was I don't remember what it was, a nine point or something. They said it was huge. Um, 
the people, because they were, you know how there's aftershocks and those go on for years sometimes afterwards. If anyone has lived in California, you know about this. Um, what happened then is a lot of the people began to move outside the city and kind of dwell in tents around the outer parts. They would come into the city to do business, but they didn't stay in the city. You know why? Because they were worried every time there was another tremble that something would come down on their head. Um, but interesting though about that city is that one of the things that remains there in that ancient city are these uh, couple of pillars. I'm going to show you real quick here on the video. If you go on uh, face, not Facebook, go on uh, your Google and Google uh, Philadelphia and earthquakes, or even just Philadelphia and photographs of the city, you'll see all kinds of things like this. But one of the things that remains there are, are these two pillars which is very interesting. How does that tie into what we looked at in our text this week? Yes, that we are going to we are going to be made to be a pillar where in the, in the temple of God. What is a pillar to you in your mind? It's a structure that holds it up. It's a structure and how it's a support. It's it stands and it's solid and it has strength and it's unbending and it's it's uh, kind of one of those absolutes that you can count on, right? That's what a pillar is all about. It holds everything else up. And so in Philadelphia, there was a couple of pillars that still remain right there in that ancient city. It's pretty much all that still remains after all these thousands of years. Okay, so that's kind of the historical background. We've got earthquakes, we've got brotherly love, we've got a city that was struggling, we've, we see a city that had to flee out into the outskirts of its own city because of the earthquakes and the house tumbling down on them and these structures that were only left pretty much were the pillars. Anything that was a solid foundation is all that remained. Were these pillars, uh, did, did they resemble something as far as the people were concerned? Well, no, they were just the pillars like on this photograph yeah, I here. Know, I that's know. that's all that was pretty much left. And it, so just, that's it. So what, what that tells though for us is in this message, how this is going to tie in is what Jesus speaks to these people. So this is what's cool about every one of these letters. Jesus speaks directly to the immediate churches that he's speaking to about the things that they relate to, that they understand, that, that, that they, can, they can grab the concept of it, right? I keep saying it, but it's so true. This is very much like Jesus when he spoke parables. He would give an earthly object that had a heavenly meaning so that people could understand the, the spiritual concept through looking at things like sheep and and uh, trees planted by water and a bread and a door and, a, you know, all these things that had uh, tangibility to them in their thinking. So for these people, pillars had tangibility. They, they got it. The only thing that got left after everything was shook was a pillar. And so that's what they visually were looking at every day. That's what their world was about. They, they understood when Jesus began to speak about them be, being a pillar in, his, in God's temple, they got it. They said, I get it. I see what you're saying because it's something that's unshakable. Even if the ground shakes, you stand. Okay, that's where we're heading. Jesus, let's go now and talk about who Jesus is in this book. How is he described for us? He is 
Holy. Let's talk about what that means. Holy. We looked, this is on page 66 and 67 of your homework. The first thing she wanted you to do was a word study on holy. What did you see about holy? What was your word study on that? Okay, set apart. Sacred. Sacred. Righteous. Um, did you guys see the, the title Holy One actually came up in your, in your subject matter whenever you looked at the word holy? Now, what she wanted you to see then is uh, uh, how Jesus is depicted as the Holy One, right? How was he depicted in that way in the cross-references? The first one was an encounter that we looked at in Mark chapter 1, right? What did you see there? Who? Jesus of Nazareth and he is called the Holy One. Now, this is what I think is interesting is who called him that? The demons. So what a contrast that is. The unclean spirit, the demon. And in my translation, he's called the unclean. Um, just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, what? business do we have with each other Jesus of Nazareth have you come to destroy us I know who you are what the holy one of God okay so he is holy so in Mark he's called this is an unclean spirit is, is shown to us in contrast and he calls him the holy one of God the holy one and who is he of of god and that's significant for understanding what's being said here when jesus says i am the i am holy he who is holy who is holy think about your own we didn't look in these verses but think about the old testament in the old testament who's holy god. only god is holy uh, when the uh, when Jesus came and he dwelt among us in his ministry years, those three and a half years, as he presented himself to the population around him and he expressed to them that he was God, the I am, how did they respond? Fury. Oh, yeah. They were totally repulsed by this concept that God would be in the form of a human man and that he would call himself the I am, and the I am who is holy, right? I think the Old Testament, the Holy One of God is also called Most High. But um, remember, also when we look back in chapter 1 of Revelation, and God is first introducing himself to us, he says, I, I am, and he gives this, uh, rendition of hold on let me let me pull it all up here and he says um, from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood and, and it continues on in that he's literally saying God is the I am because that's the, remember when we translated, it's the I am statement. He who is, who was, and who is to come, the I am. 
and then he says, and it's from the spirit and it's from Jesus. And what they did was they drew it together in a complete circle, right? Didn't they? They took, they took the, um, he who is, give me the right wording on that. Who was, and he who is to come. And that's that complete circle. And then we got in there, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God, the, and God Christ, right? He who is, he who was. This is the I am. And this is Christ in particular, the one who is to come, right? Okay. So as we, as we go into the Old Testament, then what we're really looking for in these cross-references is to see how it is that these people, pr primarily these are Jews. You did, I don't know if you knew that, but a lot of these people that came in there, there were a lot of Jews who came and congregated there. What, what caused them to do that? What caused them to come as far as Philadelphia? What had happened to them in Jerusalem? Persecution came against the, against the Jews and also at that time the Christians who were considered a sect or, or an offshoot of the Jewish people, right? And so they were spread out and in, and in their spreading out, many of them ended up in this place called Philadelphia. So what happens with them is these are people then, there's their Jews who had had exposure to Jesus's life and ministry. And you're talking basically first generation after the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. Don't you know this was hot news? Everybody who was talking about this, about what happened that day and about um, the day of Pentecost and who the disciples were and what Jesus was saying. So these Philadelphians were aware of all this. And one of the things that they would have been aware of was this Luke 1 that we went to. Remember in Luke 1? What does it tell us there was told to Mary concerning the one who was coming? Yeah, the angel who was, which, who was Gabriel, right? Uh, told Mary that she would have who? The holy child that you're con being conceived by the Holy Spirit, the holy child shall be what? The son of God. Now then, again, you're back to this I am statement. Who, who is the son of God? He's the I am. So Jesus is God the son of God. He is the I am. All right. So that was in um, Luke 1, 35 in your homework, right? Um, I love this one. Okay. I've said to you a minute ago, because it's the early birthing of the church period, period in that era still, um, the disciples, as they were walking with Jesus, as they were out, you know, traveling from city to city and, and giving, Jesus was giving that gospel message. In John 6, 69, you guys looked at that verse. What did you see there that Peter said about him? Yeah, so Peter actually makes a proclamation. He makes a declaration. This isn't the only place, by the way. There's a Matthew... Um, 16, that's a really good one. When Jesus directly asks Peter, people are saying these things about me, but who do you say that I am, Peter? And what did Peter say? 
Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Thou art the Christ. What was the Christ? The promised Messiah. And what was the Messiah to do? To come to be what for them? Savior, Savior and Amen. King, right? So they expected this Savior and King to come to them. They understood this. And the message was through Peter, he, he was a very close companion with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And as Peter tra uh, traversed through, the, through this mi mission work with Jesus for those three and a half years, here in John, he says, he, Jesus turns to him and says, so, so what about you? Do you want to leave me too? Because many of the disciples were abandoning Jesus at that point. Why? Why, was the, why were they abandoning him? Because of his message. Because he was claiming, I am. I am God. I am the one who was from the beginning, right? Yes. Katie, um, just a, a little bit back. When Moses was in the wilderness, uh -huh. and he saw a bush burning, and God spoke to him from that bush, and Moses is not anxious to go back to Egypt and bring the people out, and he asks that bush, oh, oh who can I tell you? Who, who can I tell them? That sent me. This? Yeah, yeah. And, he, and the bush, and God says in the bush, I am that I am. That's right. Tell them that I am sent you. Yes. Yes. And, yes. Then and what does that mean, I am? What do you, what? Omni. Huh? Ego omni. It's yes. Ego omni. And, it, and literally it means the self-existing. Yes. God. Yes. He is the one God, the true God, the pre, the one who has always existed, and he is self self-sufficient in his existence. No one created him. He is. And these folks around him are so steeped in the Jewish lore, they know all right. this immediately. Yes. And when Jesus said, I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world, they're thinking about the holy place. Yes. Yeah. So when he made these statements about himself, they knew exactly what he was saying, which is why many of them became angry and walked away and left mm -hmm. because they didn't like the fact that a man standing before them in flesh was saying, I am. They felt that was blasphemy. Right. And so we, we went on later and we looked in John. Uh, well, we'll get to it later, but where he's speaking about, um, uh, I lost my train of thought in the middle of all that. Um, the Abraham one, where it, he says, if you were Abraham's seeds, you would believe me. Why? Oh, 837. There you go, 837. And what did it say there? I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They answered him and said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. Hmm. Keep going. Yeah, read the whole thing. All right. Uh, you are doing the deeds of your father, they said to him. We are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but you sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? Is it because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, 
and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Wow, that's a powerful verse. That one is loaded, isn't it? And that one applies to other parts of what we're going to be discussing, but it also applies here. He is the Holy One of God. Why don't you believe that? Why were people rejecting that Jesus was God come in flesh? Why were they not willing to accept that he is the I am? What had God promised through the prophets all through the ages? Starting in Genesis, in the garden, he promised to Adam and Eve what? A seed. And who was the seed according to the New Testament? Jesus. It's the Christ. So uh, Galatians 1.16, right? Or 3.16, right? He says, who is that seed? It's Christ. 3.16. Yeah, I think so. But anyway, it's close. Right in there. 15.16. Kathleen and I will... will Look it up. <laughs> but what I want you to know is these are people who God is saying to them, I am that holy one that was promised. Promised to Mary through the son. You've heard that confession. Peter makes the confession. In fact, you are the son of God. Why You are the holy one of God. Why did he make that confession? What did he witness? What did he heard that made Peter convinced that Jesus was the holy one? Well, think about the ministry of Jesus. What had the disciples seen and heard? Miracles. Miracles. Listen, go through the Gospel of John, the whole book of John. These things have been written that you may know that I am, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you may have life in him. Because every single sign that he performed, the ones that were recorded, I, it goes on to say later in the at the end of that, uh, book of John, that if all the wonders and all the miracles that Christ had performed had been recorded, there would not be enough books in all the world to hold them. That's how many miracles he performed. That's an amazing thought. So in, in John 6, 66, Yes, yes. And what's very interesting about all those recorded records of their, their, their testimony phase, and yet later you see them weighing on it and you see them pull back. What's very interesting in, in just analyzing what God has recorded for us is you can see that they believe it. They believe it. And yet God, because he had not fully lifted the veil of their understanding, there was still somewhat of this hesitancy. Why do you think God allowed that veil to remain until after his crucifixion? What would have happened with those 12 men had they really believed that Jesus was God come in flesh? They would have, yeah, they would have never allowed him to be crucified. He had to go to the cross. So there had to be a measure of a veil left on them. So anytime you read those passages where you're like, well, this looks like a conflict. They say they believe and then they didn't believe and then they believe and then they don't believe. It's because there's this veil that God allowed to, 
to remain until the veil was lifted when he resurrected and he revealed himself to them then fully. And when he did that, the interesting thing is, is when he arrived in that in the moment of his resurrection, even in the garden, he said, you know, he stood there before Mary and she didn't recognize him at first. Why not? Why didn't she recognize him immediately? He didn't want her to recognize him. Good girl, Diane. Best answer ever. That's the answer I wanted to hear because he didn't want them to recognize him right away. What did he want them to, to do concerning the empty tomb? There was, was an empty tomb prophesied? What did the, what did the prophecies uh, through David speak of? That your body shall not what? See decay, decay, right? So he wanted them to not have the visual understanding at first. They first, he was drawing out of them faith. This is what I know. This is what the scripture says. This is what the prophets have said. The tomb is empty. Ah, he must be resurrected. And as soon as they were ready for that moment, then he opened their eyes so that they understood who he was. And that happens like three or four times in these different accounts where Jesus appears to people and he's veiled from them at first. Why? He wants to draw out of them a solid foundation of believing what the scriptures have promised, what God has promised. This is what God says here. Look, you are that holy one, the holy one that was promised to us. Mary herself is a part of that fulfillment because out of the line of David would come a son right? And out of the city of Bethlehem and from Gal Galilee, all these things were promised. The unclean spirit himself makes this testimony. And where does he make it? In a public setting, where in the ears of the hearing of the people and the, the, the spirit says, I know who you are. Think of that confession. This unclean spirit even knew who he was. Now, it doesn't mean the unclean spirit wanted to bow his knee to him, but he certainly knew who he was. Very interesting. So God, God starts this letter to this little church and says, the first thing I want you to understand is I am holy. I am the holy one. Okay. And what else is he? I love this one. This is one of my favorites. What is that speaking of? He is true. He's not false. You know what, Sarah? That's exactly the best definition of that. Because it's the most crystal clear understanding. It's, he's, he's true. He's contrast. He's not false. What was false in their arena that they were living in? What was going on around them that was false? The, the synagogue of Satan. And he says they call themselves, again, Jews, right? But what? But they're liars. So he is true. And that contrast to that, let's see, let me see if I can get this right here. Uh, the contrast to that is the synagogue of Satan. And what were they? They lied. They're liars, right? I guess I should say who. Correct. Okay, so that's in verse um, 3 9. This was in 3 7? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so there's your contrast set up in there that he is true. It's in contrast to that synagogue of Satan who lie. Um, then he says another thing. What, is, what else does, is he identified as? He 
Yeah, he has the key of David, right? What I think is interesting, when he has the key of David, now what does that mean, having the key of David? Okay, a key opens things, right? It's the person who has the authority or the power to permit or to not permit, correct? Right? So it's the key of David. So it's the subject of authority. What else? Ownership. Ownership. Power. Good one. My favorite word, sovereignty, right? He's the sovereign one because he's the one who owns. He has the power. He's the one who has the authority. And so that title, the key, uh, having the key of David tells you all that. Then it goes on in the text. i got to get my text back out again. I keep losing it. Hold on. i got to pull my pages out. It'll be easier because then I'll have them handy. I keep having to flip back and forth. That's not working very well. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. He says he, he's, he has the key of David. Who, right? Who does what? You almost could say instead of who, so, because, because he has the key of David, what? Yeah. He opens and he shuts. And I'm not going to write all the rest of it because it's too long for it. But he opens and, and he shuts. Because he has the key of David, he has that authority, ownership, power, and sovereignty. He opens and no one shuts. He shuts and no one opens, right? Um, she didn't take us there, but that passage where Pete, where I mentioned earlier about Peter, um, and he makes his confession, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then what did Jesus tell him? Do you guys remember? I don't remember the exact wording, but basically okay. it was that the only reason you could know that is if God told you. There you, you go. Because you shouldn't know. That's right. Flesh and blood did not, did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And because of this, then I am going to do what? Give you the key. I'm giving you, you the power to loose and, and bind on earth. And loosing and binding, um, let me just tell you this part, because this was very interesting me. Let me see if I can find my little piece of information on that. Here it is. Let me just explain to you what loosing and binding is, because loosing and binding is a subject you will come across in the text occasionally throughout Scripture. And it falls right in, li in line with what's being said here, where he shuts and he opens, okay? Loosing and binding means this. In the Jewish language, to bind means to forbid. In other words, shut, right? To loose means to allow to open. Are you following me? Basically, the one who does this had authority to determine or pro proclaim what is lawful or unlawful to make the judgment call, okay? Peter, having just made his confession, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus then gives him authority to bind and loose on earth. In other words, to spiritually testify to salvation that would come uh, not only to the Jews, but to the whole world. It was going to go on to where? Samaria and 
to the Gentiles, to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the whole book of Acts. It has those three progressions, right? Because God had given Peter spiritual insight concerning Christ, Jesus then in turn uh, gives Peter authority on earth to proclaim those who indeed had been saved. Isn't that interesting? And what's really cool then is when you go into um, other verses, like in Acts 8, I'll just give you some verses here. Acts 8, 14 to 17. If you'll go and look at that account, the spirit is falling on the Samaritans. And this is one of the, Nick, the, one of the major um, segment divisions in the book of Acts. And there the spirit is coming to the Samaritans and Peter arrives to witness it and the spirit falls. Up to that point, um, they had been given the gospel message. They were believing it, but Peter arrived. Then the spirit fell. Why? Because God wanted him to be that testimony of what was true and what was not true. Why do you think that was important for him to be present, he, Peter, to be present for the falling of the Holy Spirit in Samaria? He was a Jew, and these were Gentiles. Yes, and he needed to see that God was not a respecter of persons. There you go. That he wanted the Gentiles to be saved in addition to the Diane, Gentiles. you are brilliant. Again, as always, that is exactly what it is. He, God needed a testimony, a, a witness, and God had given him this authority specifically. In, in a way, it was like it was like endowing him with a ministry work, something specific that Peter was to do in the birthing of the church. And so when the spirit fell on Samaria, Peter was the one who came. Then the spirit fell and he witnessed it and he was able to make a proclamation. They have been saved just as we, okay? Then the same thing happens in Acts 10. Now here, Peter is there to witness the spirits falling on the Gentiles. And Peter ordered that the Jewish witnesses that were with him, that they baptize them because they had received the, the gospel message in the same way that they had. And then the spirit, and the spirit had fallen on them. I thought that was really cool. Acts 11, 1 to 18, Peter testifies then to the Jewish uh, leaders in Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem because there's this conflict. Are the Gentiles really in or are they not? Do they need to be circumcised in order to be a part of it? There was still all these little kinks that had to be worked out because they were making this transition from Judaism into Christianity. And now that we're in a new covenant, right? He said under the law, he made a covenant with them in Ezekiel 36, right? And he says, one day I'm going to make a new covenant with them. And it's not going to be a covenant like the old one. It's not going to be letters written on a stone tablet, but I'm going to write on your heart. And I'm going to place my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my precepts and my, and my statutes. It's a different kind of covenant that you and I enjoyed than they had. There are some things, however, that we retain from the old law, right? Do we still love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? Yes. Do we still love your neighbor as yourself? Yes. Jesus actually said in these two things, you fulfill all the law and the prophet. If you just do those two simple things, love, love God first and love your neighbor also. Um, the, the church was in this process, though, of trying to decide what about the old law was no longer necessary for us to keep. We now know the law, as far as the temple works, are no longer necessary, correct? Why? Why do we no longer need the temple? Yeah. Jesus has fulfilled it all. 
Okay, they sacrificed a lamb for the forgiveness of sins. What, is, what does John tell us about the lamb? Jesus is the lamb. Thou art the lamb of God. And he says, behold, the lamb of God who, who takes, away, takes the away the sins of the world. Exactly. So Peter testified in 11.1 1 through 18 to the Jewish leaders at Jerusalem that the Gentiles had indeed received the Holy Spirit in the same way as they had. And when they heard his testimony, they glorified God saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Isn't that amazing? So this is the opening and the closing of a door. And it has to do with what subject matter? Your salvation. And what was the resistance? Who were, who were the resistors about all this? The Jews, the Judaizers, or who, who maybe were, had one foot in the door. They were kind of on the, on the fence and they were trying to come into faith in Christ, but they were still holding on to the law. They just didn't, they weren't quite ready to let go of it and step fully into the grace that God gives to us. So in this particular passage here of loosing and binding, this is in uh, Matthew 16 verses 15 to 19. This is speaking of the same concept of opening and shutting that he has the key of David. It's speaking of your personal salvation. Nothing can oppose it, but he who is true says one thing, but what? who's the liar? Satan. The synagogue of Satan, who is, in this case, the, the Jews who are still holding on to the old system, okay? All right, so that's kind of your setup for who Jesus is to these people. What it is he specifically is conveying to them. I think it's very interesting when you really do go back and say, oh, yeah, that's right. We're really still in the book of Acts almost, right? We're just in the birthing of this church. We are learning a new thing. There's this tug of war that's going on between the old system and the new system if you're talking about Jesus as Messiah. Some were... I think, um, wanting this Messiah to come, but what were they expecting? Mostly, what were they expecting? A king, right? They wanted someone who was going to come to rule. Is he going to come to rule? Yes. But in, in the um, prophecies that you go back into the Old Testament and you look at Isaiah and so forth, what are the prophecies saying, though? That he's first a suffering servant. They missed that part of the message. First, he would come to be a suffering servant. That's what Jesus would be. How did he suffer? On the cross, right? By the betrayal of all those who rejected him, by those who didn't believe what the prophets had said and didn't believe the things that were fulfilled. He walked this earth. He said, look, this is who I am. This is what I've done. The whole book of Matthew declares that he is that king that's to come, but he came first to die. So that's where the, these are the pillars, basically. These are our pillars about Jesus, right? And we hold fast to those because those are the things that we need to absolutely have locked in our brain. He is the Holy One. He is true. And he has the key of David. He has that power and authority to loose and bind. He even demonstrated that through Peter giving Peter that authority. And how did Peter have that authority? Because God had revealed to him something and he had received it and believed it, made the confession. And in that, what Jesus did is he saw the, the, um, the obedience of faith right before his eyes and knowing that 
that Peter would be that one who would be an obedient witness, he gave him this authority and this specific mission in the early church to loosen, to bind, to declare what was true and what was not true concerning who was being saved. And there are a couple of times where Peter denies. Remember the magician? Uh, what was his name? Simon the magician, right? And he, he makes a profession. He gets baptized, all these things. He wants to have the power of the, of the Holy Spirit because he was seeing all these mighty works and miracles. And Peter said, basically, you're going to hell. <laughs> That's the gist of the subject. <laughs> but he makes that declaration he, that he, instead of um, loosing, he binds. And he says, no, I forbid it. I forbid because you're not believing by grace. Are you saved through faith? And that was not his real confession. He was looking for power, position, you know, another name, because he had been a magician. He was losing his job because all these mighty men of God were running around doing miracles. And that was supposed to be his job as a magician, right? He was very jealous of that. So Peter saw right through him. All right. Then we see in, um, uh, in 66, he speaks about the word of my perseverance. Did you see that in 310? The word of my perseverance. Okay, I want you to understand that the emphasis here is about Jesus's perseverance. This is actually another quality about Christ, right? It's why I opened us in Hebrews, and she actually took us there. <laughs> Go figure. We actually looked at in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, right? Uh, this is going to be on what day? I have to find it. There's too many homework sheets in here. That's all I got to say. Did you find it, anybody? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's on day four. <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah, way back there. <laughs> okay. Uh, so it was uh, the example of Jesus. We were to look at the word patience, right? Look that word up, the Greek. What did you find the, the word patience meant? In 310, the perseverance rather. I'm sorry. <laughs> I gave you the definition, didn't I? <laughs> what is perseverance? Okay, one of them is, you are so good, Kathleen. You catch on so quick. I'm just, you, you are good. Okay, so perseverance, it's number 5281. Did you all catch that? Yes, in your homework? Okay. This is on page 73 if you're looking for it. Okay. Um, okay, yes, steadfastness. There you go. I love that. Deliberate. Steadfastness, constancy, and endurance. Perseverance. Steadfastness. Uh, constancy. Constancy. And I like the last one. What was that last? Deliberate. There we go. Deliberate. Now you're sp speaking in my words. Deliberate purpose. <laughs> Okay, deliberate for, so, and that was what number? 5281. Is that correct? 
She's not, you're on your own. Like, you didn't have this as homework, so. You didn't? Um, not to look it up. Yeah, our, this is our page seventy four. Oh dear. Okay. Uh, page seventy four. Hmm. That's really weird. Because we don't have the Hebrews either. Okay. Um, hour of testing. Testing. Okay. Well, never mind. I'll just give it to you then, since it wasn't in yours. But somehow Susan had it. Good girl, Susan. <laughs> she looked it up anyway. Ha ha ha. <laughs> She's on, on board with me. Okay. So the word, uh, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, that was one of the, the statements here. But what I found was, even though it was a commendation that they had done that, the, the real subject matter here is about whom? Christ, right? It's about Jesus's perseverance. And what is he saying? It's steadfastness, constancy, deliberate purpose. So if you're thinking of it from that perspective, that what he's, what he's, he's saying to them is, you have kept my perseverance. Where is your focus then? On Jesus, who is your example. That's why I started this with that Hebrews verse. And she I have it in my homework. I don't know why I have it. Right. That's true. But the word perseverance, the word of my perseverance, you have kept it, right? You held it fast. But then you go on and you say, well, then what is that perseverance? And what is the my perseverance? Well, my perseverance is Christ's perseverance. So our focus then, when we're looking at the pillar for us, the one who Jesus is, who is he? He is the holy one. He is the true one. He is the king of David. He's also the one who has a perseverance. And what was his perseverance? Hebrews 12 taught us that. He says, "Keep your fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down then at the right hand of the throne of God, right? We are to keep our eyes on him, to fix our eyes on him, because he's our example, right? Um, uh, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners. Okay, so steadfastness, consider Jesus, our example. I just thought that was very good. I thought it was a very good point to kind of pull out. And I, I must have picked up on it through something I read. And I'm sorry I took you all on a little detour. Exactly. He does call us to his perseverance. Yes. Yes, one, 12, 1, 2, and 3. You. You're welcome. <laughs> that was an easy one. <laughs> it's one of the ones I actually have memorized. <laughs> okay. All right. So that talks about who Jesus is. So that gets us started here today. Let's go on now to, to what God has called you and I to. And this, got, this is um, the subject matter of what was their struggle against and what was it that he was commending them for, right? So, first of all, the Jews, right? We have the Jews, they show up in this, in this as a subject. If Jews are not in your keywords, that would have been a, a key word because these are a people group. People, places, and events are all, always uh, considered keywords when you're doing inductive study, particularly for historical works. 
people, places, and events. And the Jews being brought up, Jews being as a, uh, considered this um, synagogue of Satan. Concerning these Jews, what does God tell us? What do they say? Yeah. And what is the, what is the um, accusation Jesus is, is casting upon them? What are they saying in verse 9 about themselves? They say they're Jews. They say they're Jews. They say they are Jews. There you go. They say they are Jews, but they're not. And Jesus makes that really emphatic, you guys. I mean, think about this. As we look around the world today, even, um, we love the Jews as Christians, right? We do. And we're supposed to. We're called to that because God has a work for the Jewish nation. Yet yeah, he's going to come and fulfill his promises through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob concerning the nation of Israel, right? What he's going to do with that nation as a national group. But God is saying concerning the individuals who call themselves Jews, he's saying, yeah, they call themselves Jews, but what? They are not and then to make sure that you understood it, he says, what are they? They lie about it. They're liars. They are not. They lie. Okay, so concerning that, that's all in verse 9. Now he says, so what the Jews knew but rejected. We've already kind of gone through that. We looked at Luke 130, the prophecies of his coming, right? Um page 68, 67, and 68 in your homework. Let me go back here and see if I can find. I have so many extra papers. I can't find 68 and 69. Okay, we looked in um, Jeremiah. We looked in Luke 130. We looked in Luke 19. We also uh, started in Revelation 3, talking about uh, also the beginning of that homework was about the uh, keys. But we moved on in chapter... 3 verse 7 to 13 and noted that the church in Philadelphia was experiencing opposition. So the opposition they were experiencing were these Jews who say they are Jews, but they're not and they lie. And be, because um, of what we looked at Jeremiah, what does it say in Jeremiah? The question, read Jeremiah 23, no two is going to be raised up and for whom and what he will do, what he will be called and what will happen at that time. And then record who you think fulfills his prophecy. So these are the these are the Old Testament scriptures. These are what the Jews held to as the absolute authority word of God. And it was, and it is, right? What did Jeremiah 23 tell us? What they knew, he says in Jeremiah, that what? Tell me again, Diane, what did you say? Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, quote, you have scattered my flock and driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you. Of your deeds, because the Lord okay, which verse are you in? Are you in? Okay, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6 is where we are, right? Sorry. 
Yeah. And he said, I, I, Israel will be sa saved. Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell in security. He's making these emphatic statements about what he's promised to them. But in order to do this, what is his resource through which he's going to save Judah and cause Israel to eventually dwell in safety? What did he say in verse 5? I will do what? There you go. I will raise up David, a righteous branch for David, through David, of the line of David. I'm going to raise up a righteous branch. That's what God promised to them. They knew they were looking for a righteous branch. What did it mean, branch? What does that mean, a righteous branch? A descendant, basically. He said what they knew was that God would raise up A righteous, by the way, that falls in line with holy, right? Mm -hmm. Branch. And that was making reference to Christ, right? And so that's in Jeremiah uh, 23, 5. Is that right? Okay. All right. So they knew this. This is something that they should have been fully aware of. What else did we learn? One day he's going to do what? That righteous branch. He will reign as king. Now we know that he is king. He sits on his throne in the heavenly realm right now. However, there's a physical, literal promise that one day he is going to reign where? Here, on earth, where? In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. And he will be their king, right? When we see him at the end of the book of Revelation, which is where we're heading, we see him in chapter 19 coming back on his white horse. And what's written upon him is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so when he returns, he will be that king. So they know that he would, they were going to raise up a righteous branch who is Jesus. They also understood that with, without the shedding of blood, what? There is, no there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, that wasn't one of our verses. I'm throwing that in, of course. But knowing that, then, if the righteous branch was going to come, what do you think would be necessary of that one who was righteous? And righteous truly means holy, without stain, without blemish, pure. What would be necessary for that holy branch if he was going to save them? He'd have to be sacrificed. You see the, the logic of the flow of thought here for them? These are people who were not dim-witted. They weren't uneducated in these things. They went to the temple on a regular basis and sacrificed a lamb for righteousness sake. And they were looking for one day a righteous branch through the line of David who would come, who would be the Holy One of God, which is promised here and revealed to them as he came and he walked this earth. They were promised that. They knew that there would be a righteous branch raised up for them, that he would be of the, of the line of David, who was Mary of the line of David, right? They knew this. And so as when this occurred, this should have been a clue to them, and yet there was this resistance. So what do you think they were? these people were telling this little church in uh, Philadelphia? Yeah. Yeah. This Jesus that you worship, he is not the righteous branch. He's not the one that God promised. Because they were being blinded. What were their, why were they so blinded? What were they looking for? A king and power, right? Somebody who would come in and make them the head and not the tail. 
correct? Which is also a promise, but they missed the part where God was going to first bring in the righteous branch who saves, right? He says he will reign in his days. Judah also will be saved and Israel will dwell in security. We're heading there. We're getting really close. We're seeing Israel finally, according like what Ezekiel said, the dried dead bones are beginning to be put back on their land. They have been for over 70 years now, right? They're, they're repopulating their land. They're reestablishing that city of David that God is going to come back and rule and reign in. Um, we're beginning to see some of these things head in that direction. Who would have ever thunk even 100 years ago that there would ever be an Israel again? Every, or that Jerusalem would be the capital, which only just happened under our last president. I mean, this is current events being fulfilled right before our eyes. How do you not? But see, these are the things. For us, it's these things that we're watching, right? The things that are really relevant to us are the things that we're seeing happening right this moment. We've seen Israel come. We've seen their nation be brought back. We see Jerusalem again as a capital. We're beginning to see Ezekiel 30. Uh, six, I think it is, 35, 36, being fulfilled, correct? That those bones are back on it. But what they were looking for was that righteous branch and they were rejecting it. But they had the word spoken to them regular no, and, and taught. Oh, yeah, we are far more accountable in that regard because we have it everywhere in America in particular. Now, this is not true in the Middle East and different places. And right now we need to be praying, praying, praying for people around the world. There is so much persecution coming against the churches. Um, you know, my daughter just came from a mission trip in one of the one of those places overseas. I won't mention, but in the Middle East and the persecution and the the heavy burden that's on these people who are trying to be faithful to Jesus right now. It is so difficult for them. And right now that door is closing. That door of ministry work in those places is beginning to shut because we are getting closer and closer to those end times. And these people are making it more and more oppressive and more and more dangerous for us to take it in. So what we're, ha we're counting on, what my daughter was sharing with me was her job was to train these women who were going to be leaders in their churches. And now it's their job to help one another. And so we need to be praying for them that they, like Philadelphia, that they stand firm, that they be pillars and not um, buckle under to the persecution. But listen, they could, like, like the the church of Smyrna, they could lose their lives for what they believe in those places right now. And it's a serious thing. And you and I, we're approaching that too in America at some point. It's going to become like that for America as well. I believe, however, that we, the church, are taken out. So that's where we're heading in this conversation. What, will, what they knew, God would raise up a righteous branch. So you saw that there. What did you see in Jeremiah 33? God's word is what? Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. And it can't be broken, right? He's saying, look, if the sun and the moon and the stars and all those things and the, and the course of their action, if that ever ceases, then my word will cease. Has that ever ceased? 
Do we still have the sun and the moon and the stars? So guess what still stands? God's word to Israel, that I am going to come back. I am going to be your righteous branch. I am going to save Judah. I'm going to save Jerusalem. I'm going to rule and reign in that city. I have promised that. And as long as the stars and the sun and the moon are there, that is my witness to you. That's what God says. Uh, I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. He shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. So in other words, he came to first fulfill the salvation for humanity, all humanity, right? Then he says, um, but in those days, now we're speaking of another time frame. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. Why do I know that's a new time frame? Is Jerusalem dwelling in safety right now? No. What just fell on her not even a week ago? Yeah, from where? Jordan. And this is Hamas and these different... Islamic groups that are coming against Israel still. They're still all at war coming. And as a matter of fact, um, uh, Amir Safardi, he gave a little talk about it the night that these um, bombs fell. And he was saying, look, we are this close to declaring war. Yeah, it's kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah. Imar, Imar. Safardi, I can't pronounce it. It's T-S, it's Jewish, so it's a hard one to pronounce. But he's a pastor out of Israel. He's also in the army. So he's active duty. He's like a captain or a major or something. He's he's high ranking in their military. So he's got kind of some inside information on the military side. He doesn't ever disclose anything that's confidential for them, but he does come on and give these updates, these prophetic updates about what's going on in Israel for us. And they're, and they're very interesting. Jack uh, Hibbs and he are like buds, you know, they hang together a lot, very tightly. And you'll see them get up and give prophecy uh, updates on a regular basis. I just watched one that was released a week ago now. And so they're, they're covering that. But this is what he's saying. In those days, Judah's will. That's in the future. That's what, that's what the book of Revelation is taking us toward. That day when all these things, the, the earth is going to be tested. And one day I'm going to come and I'm going to rescue Judah and Jerusalem. I am going to come and be king of kings and lord of lords. I will rule and reign on this earth. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the house of David on the throne. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer me burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and to prepare sacrifices continually. So in that day when he comes back, guess what's going to be reestablished? A place of worship right there that we can go in person and worship Jesus face to face. And there'll be animal sacrifice, exactly. And we'll talk about that later, what that all means. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night so that day and night will, be, will not be at their appointed time. And can that happen? Has that ever happened? Day and night don't come in a 24-hour cycle? Are we still seeing it? Yes. And he says, then he says, then my covenant may also be broken with David. If you can break that, then you can break my covenant. But the opposite is true too. If you can't break that and we haven't, guess what? God will never break his word to Israel. Okay, we got a lot to cover. 
behold, God's word is true. That's what I wanted you to get out of that, Jeremiah. Uh, was it 33? Yeah, that's what I wanted. That God's word is true. He's made promises and he will keep them. That is what, what God is, going to, is calling you to do is, is they are liars. They are not accepting what they knew. You and I are to accept what we knew. And he says to us, um, behold, well, that's where that rebuke came into in John 8 that, that Kristen read earlier. Jesus rebukes the Jews and he says, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the deeds of Abraham, right? But if God were your father, you would love me. But guess what? Who is your father? Your father is the devil, right? Because you're refusing to believe all these things that I have said. You're refusing to believe. So he says to you and I, behold, what? There are three things. So he gives a commendation to him. There are three things he commends them for, right? Did y'all catch that? The word because starts the sentence because, number one, what does he say in verse eight? You have a, a little power, right? That's what he's commending them for, correct? He's, he's giving them a compliment. He's saying, this is what I'm seeing in you. I know your deeds. Behold, I put an open door before you, which no one can shut. Why? Because, why? There are three things. Because, number one, you have a little power. Now, that's a very interesting statement. You have a little power. What did you think that meant? We're doing sort of well. Okay. Not denied by name. Very good. We do know that. He says, you have kept my word in number two. We know what that means. That they've been faithful to the testimony, to the, they've held fast to what is true. They've heard and believed my word. As opposed to the Jews, this is the contrast. You have a little power. You have kept my word. And number three, you have not denied my name. Okay, those last two, we're going to skirt past pretty quickly because I do think you understand them. You basically, my word, you have kept my word. In other words, you've held fast to what is true. You have heard and believed my word. You've not denied my name. In other words, you have not, you have rejected these lies. These liars who come against you say, you're not of the house of God. You don't belong to God. God doesn't love you. That's what the Jews were saying to these Christian believers. And he, and he, they were rejecting. They're going, no, that's not true. God does love us. And this is how we know it. Because he made these promises. We believe them. We believe the Messiah came. We believe that branch, that righteous branch that was promised has come. So we believe that. And we are not denying his name, the name that he said, the righteous branch, right? You could put that my name, the righteous branch. who holds the keys of David, right? And so um, he says to them, but you have a little power. Now, this is interesting, you guys, because I saw all kinds of insights on what people thought this was. Is everybody as confused as the words that I kept seeing all over the page? <laughs> Listen, first of all, you have to know this, this is a commendation, right? Jesus is saying about them, good job. 
Good job. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Also, you have a little power. What does that mean? Okay. Right, right. They're acting on what they know because they're holding to his, to his word and they're not denying his name. They're holding all that fast. What is the little power about? How might that also be translated if it's not? Obviously, okay, so what are some of the interpretations? Let's start there. So what I read was they were relying on, on Christ's strength, not Okay, very good. Okay, so that's a lot closer than some of the commentaries. Very good. Relying on Christ's strength. You have a little power. You're relying Put on God, basically, Christ's strength, okay? Relying on God, what else? What would be the little power that they have? Yeah, you know what? Has to do with how they're viewing themselves in contrast to who it is that they are relying on. So if, if I have a proper perspective of who I am, do you remember that verse we did last week in Zechariah? Not by strength, nor by might, but by what? My spirit. My spirit, saith the Lord. What was what was um, uh, he? What was he being called to understand? That he couldn't do it in his own self because he had little strength. So what what do you call that for a Christian? What kind of an attitude is that for a person to understand that we don't have that much strength? Humility. There you go. Thank you. Humility. You have a little power. Humility, humble before God. And because you have that, do you see how that's a commendation now? He's commending them. You understand that you have little power. And that's a commendation. That means you understand properly who you are before me, but that without me in the game, without me as part of that process, without you relying on me, then there is no ability in yourselves. And because you understand that, because you're humble before me and you have kept my word and you've not denied my name, you're relying on me. Yes. And it, though they probably shouldn't have put in that A little power. Yeah, no, they shouldn't have. Because it doesn't exist in the There you go. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. So. Because you have little power. Yeah. The, and the other, I love that, Christina. See, so here's what happens is our English translation messes us up. Uh, one of the commentaries I read, it says, you but little strength. Uh, and it's, it's, if you do a little, it's a, it's, a, it's a literal translation. He said, it really is this word, you but little strength. That's really what the translation is. And when you look at it that way, you have but little strength and you're understanding that that gives you this this understanding that that you're humble before god and he's commending them for that humility before him you have little strength yeah 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 now some of the commentaries say this has to do with they're a small church and they, can't, they don't have much power in the system of the world of that day. And they don't have a lot of influence in the churches either because they're all so little. I mean, those are all the other things. But the thing is, is that something that Jesus would commend you for? Oh, you're a little church. <laughs> no, that wouldn't be a commendation, would it? He's commending them. He's saying, good job. 
good job, you're a little church. You have little strength, you're weak and impotent and you're not doing a lot. That's not a commendation. It's only a commendation if you understand it as a statement that you understand your position and your need for me, that you're reliant upon me. And it's an act of humility and he's commending them for it. That's, the, oh, that's where you have to sometimes when you're doing inductive work is process, work it through. If he's commending them, this one, these two make sense. You have kept my word and you've not denied my name, but this first one didn't make sense until you've reasoned it through and you understand he's speaking about humility and that's what he was commending them for. Isn't that cool? Okay, so there's that. These are three commendations. They are essential pillars of our faith that must be held fast to the end. Then he exhorts and he says, be another behold, right? I will cause them to come and bow down at your feet. I will cause them to know that I loved you. I will also keep you from the hour of testing. Now, why does he have to, why does he talk about them, the Jewish people in this way? What do you think then was going on with them? I'm going to cause them to know that I have loved you. And they are going to come and bow down at your feet. Now, I, I looked up a, bu a bunch of verses that were not in our homework where God speaks about in that day when, when all these are taking place. Isaiah, let me give you a couple. Isaiah 49, 23. This is a prophetic word through Isaiah to Israel. Kings will be your guardians. Their princes, your nurses, in other words, you, they're going to work for you. <laughs> they will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. This is a promise to Israel who has been treated so badly by the world through the generations. And then he says, you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. If you believe these promises, the things that these Jews knew, if you do that, you will not be put to shame. Isaiah 60, 14 says, The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. They will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Back to our major subject, really. Psalm 72, let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents, the kings of Sheba and, and Seba, other gifts, and let all kings bow down before him, all nations serve him. Isn't that awesome? Okay, so that gives us that second one. What you and I are to do, what, we are, what, what God has said concerning uh, those who are oppressing them, that they have to stand fast in that, they have to hold fast, right? Um, he talks about the open door also. There are two views to that open door. Does anybody want to shout them out real quickly? What That open door. We talked about earlier, one of the things that they often said about this city was they were to be a missionary city, right? So it was an open door to evangelism. But the other one would be an open door to heaven, meaning their personal salvation. Jesus holds it in his hand and the Jews, they are liars who don't believe him. He is the one who is the open door. Hold fast what you have. And what, who do they have? Jesus, right? All right, so let's go on back down to the pillars now. We'll be we'll, moving along pretty good. They keep my perseverance. I will keep them from the hour of testing. So the hour of testing comes up. 
How much time do I have? Um, 11, minutes. 11 minutes. We got it. No problem. Day five. We are on day five, girls and boys. Isn't that nice? <laughs> we made it through the whole lesson on, in a pretty good swoop there, I think. I got to find day five, though. I've got 16 pages here to get through. Yep. Hold on. Four. Okay, day five. Uh, he will keep you from the hour of testing. Now, we were talking before class, myself and Cynthia in particular, because she's our Greek girl who knows a little bit of the language. Um, I call her my expert. Of course, she denies that, but I'm not going to take that from her. She is an expert probably because she's more expert than me. <laughs> All right, so the hour of testing. Now, one of the things that Kay mentioned was that the hour of testing... Um, the word ek from that I will keep you from the hour of testing. This is on day page 75 in your work. Ek, it can either mean through the hour or out of the hour. Okay. What did you guys find? Did you look the word up? Yes, out, of. out of. Very good. All I got was out of. I looked in a gazillion different things. Out of was, what else do you have in there? You do have the word through? Okay, that's commentary notes. That's not that's not your interpret that's not your Greek word study. Yeah. Okay, that could be through the fire in that context through the fire, right? Okay, but concerning this hour of testing, first of all, let's just talk about the hour of testing. What is the hour of testing? Okay, it's the tribulation. Uh, let's see, she had us look at what? It was on the day before, I think. On day four, she had us look at all those verses in Revelation. Uh, let's talk about those. Uh, Revelation 6. Who are those who dwell on the earth? What is the hour of testing? So remember, the first thing I said to you earlier when we opened the class, I said, the first thing you want to do is look at that hour of testing in the immediate context, right? And it doesn't exactly clarify for us, except it does give us some points. What does it say about um, the hour of testing in verse 10? What does it tell us? What is the hour of testing? is okay it's about to come and where on the whole earth okay so you're talking a global a global event right the whole earth right okay and okay to test those who dwell on the earth. Okay, and that's also in verse 10. Okay, so both those are in 10. Then we went to those cross-references in Revelation because we started in the immediate text. That's how we got this much definition, immediate context. Then we go to the book 
as our secondary resource because that's also that's really our most accurate understanding of what this author means about that hour of testing right because it's the same author it's written at the same time it's all in the same book so his message and his thought his stream of thinking is right here it's going to be found right here in this book what did we learn about who are those that dwell on the earth what are they like what do they do what are they involved with what are they associated with, you know? And then what does it mean? What has been the hour of testing in this context, correct? What did you learn by looking at Revelation 6? What's gonna happen in that hour of testing? Yeah, God will judge and avenge. Uh, our blood, our blood being who? The Christians, right? right? Uh, our blood um, on them. Who's them? Yeah. Those are the evil people. Our blood and them, okay? So our blood is us Christians. Our blood is going to be avenged on them. Them who? Them who took our lives possibly, because one of the things you'll see when you see that Revelation 6 is these are the souls of those who are beneath the altar. They're in heaven. And they're saying, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And so this is what we're going to see, that during this hour of testing, God is going to avenge our blood, the blood of the saints who have died for the sake of Jesus Christ, right? And they have persecuted, anyone who's been persecuted by uh, those who are unbelievers, Okay, that's in Revelation 6.10. All right, what else? What about uh, 8.13? Concerning that time, how is it described? Well, like three ah, whoa, whoa, whoa. That is not a good thing. By the way, anytime you see three, it's, a, it's, a, in, it's a, the implication of completeness, right? It's a... It is an increase in intensity. That's a good point. Yes. And this whoa, whoa, whoa is on who? On those who dwell on the earth. Okay, so again, up here, God's going to avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Here, it's whoa, whoa, whoa on those who dwell on the earth. So those who dwell on the earth are, are at this point, what do you think? These are unbelievers, okay? Uh, in uh, Let's drop down to 13, verses 8 and 14. All those who dwell on the earth will do what? Yeah. Those who dwell on the earth. It says they will worship and make an image to the beast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Now you know these are the ones who are going to worship the Antichrist, right? Okay, yeah, so that's in 17, right. Their names... ...are not written in the Book of Life. 
from the foundation of the world, right? Revelation 17, oh, eight, sorry. You did? Okay, I believe you. I think it's in, it's in two spots. Okay, it's in there twice. Okay, all right. Okay, so now we know who those who dwell on the earth are. So that clarifies a whole lot for us when we go back to our immediate context and we say concerning them, um, because you have kept my word, my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. So now we go back to that word from, and when you look at it from, first of all, context always rules for interpretation, right? If you look at what is going on here, it's a whoa, whoa, whoa to those who dwell on the earth. And it's a time when God is going to judge and avenge our blood, the Christians, right? And so this is a time for who? It's, it's about to come on the, to do what? To test those who? That dwell on the earth. Is that us? Are we going to be around to be tested in this time? No, because it's a time when God's avenging our blood. So if you look at just the immediate context and the things that follow in this immediate book, what you see are, it's those who dwell on the earth that are going to have to go through this time. It doesn't appear that we do. And the other very important factor will, will be that you're going to, and you'll see it when we get into it. Um, you never see the church mentioned after chapter three. When we finish with these letters to the churches, remember the segment division? Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will come after these things. So after what things? The era called the, the church age. Okay, so with a combination of two or three points, you, you kind of come to the conclusion that we are going to be taken, we will be, what? What does he tell us? What is the promise to us? I will keep you from the hour of testing. It's a promise, right? It, it's, an, it's, a, it's a word of exhortation to us. If it meant through it, would that be a word of exhortation after what we just looked at in Revelation? I mean, the things in Revelation where there are going to be earthquakes, the grasses are going to, the trees are going to be burned up, the seas are going to, half of, a third of them are going to die right off the bat. I mean, this is just at the beginning. Uh, stars are going to fall from the sky. It's going to be a horrific time. So is that a time when you and I want to, want to be around for? I would say no. So would it be an exhortation to us if, God, if Jesus was telling us, I'm going to take you through it? Well, I guess we do go through times of trial and testing on this earth right now. I mean, I think that there's going to be some really hard things that we are going to have to face before this final day begins. But the, the hour, as, as a matter of fact, there are, there are definite articles. It's not just the hour of testing in the Greek. It's the hour of the testing. It's a definitive, so it's, it's a specific time. It's not just testings on the earth in general that we go through. It is a specific the testing with the definite article. And the word from, everything I read, and I went through like five or six different Greek um, word study books all of them say it's a primary preposition denoting origin meaning the point from whence the action or mo motion proceeds 
from it, it it's an action word to bring brought out of it from it from out of place time or cause so out of place out of time or out of the cause so it's something that you're being brought from from out of from away from out of from and from uh, in the greek english lexicon it says the extension from an area or space usually with the implication of removal out of a delimited fixed area from out of and from from out of out of from out from out of this was one more point this uh, other dictionary um what was it which one was it i can't remember anyway it's number 5455 it says in this one oh i know it was a um you know how words can have a root, a root that they come out of the word the word is developed from another root word with well, this root word uh that is brought out of is is uh, number six is number 5455 it's from the strongs it means to summon or to call and you know what that brought to my mind was that Thessalonians passage where he says, and you'll hear the trumpet call and the dead in Christ shall rise. That's what made me think of it. Uh, it says to sound, emit a sound or speak, to call, to call to oneself, either by one's own voice or through another, to send for or to summon or to call by name. And so that's the root to this word from. I thought that was really cool. Yes. Yeah. Keep you tells you protection, right? And from is out of. Are you? Here's my question. If Jesus is trying to encourage us, are you now encouraged that he's keeping you from it and you're and you're being brought out of it? Yeah. I'm encouraged. If I thought I had to go through it, I don't think I'd be so encouraged. I think I'd be a little bit fearful still. <laughs> All right. That, yes. Doesn't the church appear at the beginning of chapter four, the lampstands in heaven? No, that's the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry. Yep, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, we're not at all from chapter four on, We don't. you don't see the church at all. Yes, ma'am. I'm concerned occasionally about things that don't make sense. Me. Yeah, um, me too. Yeah, you too. <laughs> I get confused. Yes. There, there, the Book of Life has names in it. Right. But the names of of the uh, bad people are not in the Book of Life. Now, how can that be? Remember, I've told you there are several books. There's a the Book of Life. There's a Lamb book, Lamb's Book of Life. There are also books of deeds that you're judged from. The deeds, deeds. the work, your works. Um, I'll have to give you some more information on that, but you'd have to research to see what all these different books are. Yes, you're born, and you can be blotted out of the the Book of Life, but this Book of Life is obviously the Lamb's Book of Life. And it's saying you won't ever be, you're written in it from the foundation of the world. But these who are, the, those who dwell on the earth were never written in that book. They were never in the Lamb's Book of Life. I want to know why. Why would they be in the Lamb's Book of Life, which is the shed blood of Jesus for your salvation? And they reject him. They reject him? Yes, they are rejecting him. Remember, it's these people. They knew these things, but they rejected it. That's why they wouldn't be in that book. Okay? All right. Good job, everybody. Love you. See you later.